You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now bring you Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and, and welcome once again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise and potential of Judaism in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, and in the church he left behind, the Catholic Church, and in the sacraments that uh, come to us through that Catholic Church. Um, I sometimes talk, probably quite frequently on this show, mention that I don't consider myself a convert at all. I consider myself still Jewish. I grew up Jewish. I always thought of myself as Jewish. And when I discovered that Jesus was, in fact, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, I just went from being a Jew who was wrong about who Jesus was to a Jew who was thankfully right about who Jesus was. Hello again. Uh, sorry for that uh, slight technical hitch. Uh, Roy Shoman again. Anyway, I just went from being a Jew who was wrong about who Jesus was to a Jew who was right about who Jesus was and ready to follow him as he led me into the transformation of Judaism into the Catholic Church and the sacraments. Uh, today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming on the show another Jewish entrant into the Catholic Church who I believe feels the same way that she isn't a convert at all. She's just a Jew who followed the transformation of Judaism into the Catholic Church. And Good I invited choice. her on to tell her very, very beautiful uh, witness testimony of how Jesus reached out to her and how she found the fulfillment of, of Judaism in the Catholic Church. So are you there, Elisa? I am here. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. More importantly, Great. I hope our... Listeners can hear you, but I suspect they can. Just let me, um, I forgot to mention this. This is a live show. It is a call-in radio show. But um, as usual, we usually around halfway through the show, on the half hour, take a short musical break of a minute or two. And perhaps it would be better to call in after that break uh, so that Elisa has a chance to, you know, go through I her witness you, testimony yeah. at some length before we, any, you know, very welcome interruptions. So... Anyway, Elisa, welcome. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to come and speak. Uh, uh, talking about Jesus is actually my favorite subject. So <laughs> it's, been, it's, it's been wonderful to start thinking about all the things, all the events, starting really way, way back in my life that led me to where I am today. And you're absolutely right. Um, I do not see myself as a convert in any way. Um, just a, a Jew who, Jew, Jewess, I suppose, who now believes that and knows that Jesus is the Messiah, who was uh, predicted and foretold about in the Old Testament. And it wasn't really until I became a Catholic that I understood 
the Old Testament and understood the prophecies. And um, I think the Holy Spirit has led me to greater and greater understanding every time I return to, to God's Word. I find something new. It's just never-ending. The cornucopia of knowledge and faith. It's a beautiful thing. So what's Are a nice Jewish girl doing yeah. in a place like this? What's that? I, I lost you uh, for a minute there. What's a nice Jewish girl like you doing in a place <laughs> like this? Exactly. Well, I'm going to set sort of the backdrop about my life growing up Jewish, and um, but I wanted to talk about first something very odd that happened to me when I was around nine or you know maybe ten, eight, nine, ten. Um, I, I really don't have any other word for it except that it was. I guess you would call it a vision, an inner vision, but it was an understanding. And I was in my house, sitting in my house and looking around and looking at the walls and looking out the window, my neighbor's yard and their car, and I all of a sudden had this deep understanding that everything in our world that we made, everything that we have created as human beings, as I put it to myself in my young mind, was made of guilt that somehow we were driven by guilt to create this world with all of our activities and everything that we did, and that it was somehow at the root of our being and and did drive us. And I'm just putting that out there because, to me, as I reflect back on it, it's a very, very odd thing for a Jewish child to think or see. Because, as you know, Roy, of course, um, Jews who do not accept the Messiah do not believe in original sin. In fact, I just had this conversation with my sister last night on the phone. We were talking about it. And um, so I, I never, I mean, I don't even know that I really was familiar with the word sin. My sister said, I don't think we ever heard the word guilt, um, really, in terms of we did go to Sunday school. but So that was just an odd thing. But anyway, um, the temple was a very, very big part of our lives. I do have four sisters. One was unfortunately passed away, an older sister, and then another sister who didn't grow up with me because she's 10 years older in the same way that my younger sister did. So when I say my sister from now on, I'm talking about my younger sister. So my younger sister and I uh, went to Hebrew school. We sang in the choir. We were both bought mitzvahed. Later, I think she was in USY, too. I know I was in BBD. We went to Camp Ramah, which is a camp in California for Jewish boys and girls, and some of the happiest memories of my childhood happened there. And um, in our temple, everyone seemed like family to us, Uh, actually, because, of course, now that I'm older and look back, in fact, they were. You know, we were, in a way, all related. Um, I would have characterized my family as moderately moderately religious. Um, We did go to temple, but Really, I don't know if we would have gone so much on Friday night had my sister and I not been singing in the choir. Um, my mother did talk about God, of course, and um, we didn't pray a lot. I only remember once or twice doing Shabbat prayers, and probably because my sister and I had learned how to sing them, and so we did them both. We didn't really keep the Sabbath, so to speak. Um, my parents did go to high, the high holidays services, um, and of course, like most Jewish children, we were taught that Jewish was a good man. That Jesus was a good Jewish man, and nothing more. And um, once I remember, we did have Catholic friends who lived across the street. 
four and later five little girls, and they went to Catholic school. And um, we had been taught by my mother, and I, I don't think that we were alone in this, that that Catholics were sheep, uh, to put it bluntly, who didn't think for themselves and just believed whatever they were told to believe, whereas Jews were different. They thought for themselves. And um, so that was just the prejudice that we were raised with. And they, our friends invited us to go to church once, and my mother gave her permission and said, you may go, but do not kneel. Jews do not kneel. So we were very good little girls, and we sat there and didn't kneel. It was a Tridentine Mass because it took place during Vatican II, somewhere between 62 and 65. So I just remember the priest be having their backs to us the whole time, and the Latin didn't know what was going around, going on, and the priest turned around to talk, of course, give the homily, and I thought, oh, thank goodness, now he's going to speak to us and in English, but I was too young to really understand anything he was talking about. And another memory I have from that time is <clears throat> my friends had a children's book about Fatima, and we were playing at their house, and I saw this book lying on the floor, and I picked it up, and I was looking through it, and I remember so vividly the picture of the, the children with their backs, you know, from to whoever would be looking at the picture, looking up at this vision. And my friend Mary said, oh, yeah, that's about the Blessed Virgin Mary came down and talked to these kids. And I said, get out of here. What are you talking about? She said, no, really, really. I said, how do you know that's true? I know Everybody knows it's true, so that was interesting. And I remember her showing me how she prayed the rosary. So that was my—that was the limit of my exposure to Catholicism. So somewhere around the age of, I, I suppose, nine or ten, my father started exhibiting odd symptoms. Although it was so gradual that I don't think we noticed it. We just thought of him as kind of detached, and he was less present mentally, and also having more and more frequent emotional outbursts didn't seem to make any sense to us. And also at that time, my parents lost their business. And so, of course, that added extra stress and strain for him. And by the time I was 13, it culminated for my poor father in a complete and total what what appeared to be nervous and emotional breakdown. And um, he literally was taken away by the men in the white coats and was a terrible moment for our family. He was 20 years older than my mother, so my mother was in her late 40s. He was in her late 60s. In those days, there wasn't even a word for what we now know was Alzheimer's, but he did suffer from that. And once he was hospitalized at the age of 13, he never came home again. He died when I was 18 in the hospital. And in a sense, I can mark that as a line of demarcation because in my life, because our family sort of fell apart in a way. There was so much stress and fear and sadness. And um, I think because I felt the responsibility just because of my personality to help my mother and my younger sisters in a way, I almost felt like I became the de facto man of the family in a sense. I developed a sort of an edge about me. So um, that was sort of where that happened. It was hard later on for that edge to be broken down by God, but it was. Anyway, <clears throat> so... By the time I was 14, I entered high school, and that was the great antidote for my depression and sadness at home. And um, high school was really nothing more for me than one big, wonderful social whirlwind. Schoolwork came easily to me. 
all I cared about was, was the fun and the, the games and the parties and all of that. And um, I experienced my first love at that time, and this boy absolutely adored me. He was older. I was 14, 15 by then. He was 18. And um, not that big of a difference, but when you're that young, there is a big difference. And I think I was really just too young to reciprocate those feelings. I loved his love for me, but I really, um, I didn't also by then know how to relate to anyone of the male gender. I, I, I you know, we now we're a small family of women. And so <clears throat> basically he went off to college and met older girls who were more willing to be involved in the things he wanted, a certain kind of a physical relationship and, also, unfortunately, he got into hallucinogenic drugs and tried to talk me into doing that, and I would have no part of that. So he did break up with me, and um, it was a great shock for me. I was absolutely devastated. And it, 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 looking back, it seems like it was a strange reaction to be so devastated. But when I consider that I that I just lost my family, my father two years before, and our family had, had suffered so much, I think all of that sort of combined and threw me into a great depression. And my two closest girlfriends had their boyfriends and were busy. My younger sister was busy with her life. My older sister, by then, who was 10 years older, had married and moved across the country to New York. Um, we were in Las Vegas, Nevada. And um, my mother was busy just trying to make ends meet. So I really had no one to turn to and nothing to turn to. And I kept, I was in such a deep, dark place. And I kept trying to make myself feel better about things, and I, I just couldn't, didn't succeed. And I really began at that point when I was 15 to question my life because I noticed that everything, I couldn't help but notice that everything I had considered important to me was outside of myself. And I considered everything, even family relationships, I began to see as nothing but props that we use to keep ourselves away from acknowledging or seeing this big black hole of emptiness in our lives. I realized there was just nothing at the center of me or my life. And that was the beginning, however, of my finding and even defining what an inner life is. And that inner life changed me, and I have to say sustained me from that time on for the rest of my life even though it was such a deep, dark place. So finally, one day, after trying so hard to, to feel better, I just decided to give up. And I told myself, all right, I'm going to feel like this, and so be it. I'm not going to try to find it, fight it anymore. I'm just going to be this way. And that was when I really started spiraling downward rapidly. It got worse and worse and worse. And then at one point... After that, um, it was as if I was at the bottom of the biggest, blackest, deepest, dark hole. And it seemed like after I surrendered to it, I went through a trap door in, in that hole. And all of a sudden, the world looked completely different. And I saw God everywhere and in everything. And I knew God was. And I knew he was here in his creation, not in any kind of a pantheistic way, but that his, you know, like Psalm 19 says, the heavens are declaring the glory of God and from the proclaims his handiwork. It was like that. 
And uh, later on when I read Arguments of Innocence by Blake and he talked about seeing eternity in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, I knew what he was talking about. I had actually seen that with my physical eyes and with my spiritual eyes and with my heart. So everything in my life changed for me, and I see that as an absolute line of demarcation. I experienced a spiritual awakening at that point through experiencing that nothingness. And I remember thinking that they had always gotten, had almost gotten me, and they was everybody else I knew who believed in this, what I thought of as conventional and consensual reality that we all lived in, which was an illusion of sorts, not in a Hindu sort of way, but just that it wasn't the real reality. The real reality was God, and we couldn't see him. None of us could see him, but at least for that time, that period, I thought I could see him, and of course, like we all do, I thought that would last forever, and it didn't, but it still changed me. And I realized that all, all of the great things in this world, um, real art, true, good music, great philosophical, philosophical ideas, all of those were attempts to describe this thing. That's what I called it, this thing, God. And I also realized at that point in my life that the only way to really find God was to give everything up, to renounce everything, because it was all these things that we filled our lives with that we thought were important, that kept us from this awareness of God. And I also understood at that time that if if a person is suffering and one accepts that suffering and surrenders to it, it can lead us to God. So that was quite uh, um, quite an awareness. Did you have any questions you wanted to ask? Yeah, well, I have a a long list of questions. A whole bunch. How long long did that uh, state of awareness last? That state of awareness did last, oh, in, it, in its strongest way, it lasted for a few days to a week, but the aftermath of it lasted for months. And then um, as I, I'm sorry, oh, I lost Well, it, it reminded me of um, my, I mean, it's, it's I know. almost exactly like, you know, my initial I know. I and know. I remember I in that experience not being surprised at what I was seeing. All I couldn't understand is how I could have ever not seen it because this was so exactly. much more real. Yes. Sounds like you had the same yes. experience. Exactly the same. And that's why I sort of in an email to you, I, I sort of hinted at that many of our experiences are very, very similar. Um, it was exactly that. And I realized, and that's what, what I realized is that we don't see it because we're blinded by the world we've created. The world of our, even our familial relationships, as, as sacred as they are, still our, our involvement with those and our, you know, our busyness, our, our lives, our school, our work, our this or that, our, our desire to have fun, um, all of those kept us from seeing God. We had to empty out have all those things emptied out of us in order to be able to see. And I, I imagine you probably felt the same. Um, actually, not no, quite. There, no. there were also differences. One is that yeah. state of consciousness in its full form for me only lasted maybe an hour, hour and a half, maybe oh, okay. two hours. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't last for, mm-hmm. for days. And also I was not, mm-hmm. I, I didn't, 
I didn't see any. I mean, I, I just I didn't see anything about why I didn't otherwise have that consciousness. I just mm-hmm. I, I could not imagine ever losing that consciousness. It was just so much I know. more real, more immediate than the physical yeah. world in front of me in its physical nature and its mm-hmm. material nature. That is like, yeah. I just could not comprehend how I could ever have been aw- unaware of it. I couldn't comprehend mm-hmm. how anyone could be unaware of it. Um, but right. I have some more questions. Yeah, um, okay. One is, um, especially since most of our listeners are not Jewish, and, and one of the purposes of the show right. is to kind of um, give them a feeling of of what Jews are missing, actually, from the inside. In other words... Yes. why they should have mm-hmm. a heart for the conversion of the Jews. It's not triumphalism, it's charity, because because there's really right. something very tragic about the inaccessibility of God within Judaism. So I want to ask you, so true. in that black emptiness everywhere, um, you know, in that depression, um, in principle, you had previously believed in God. Basically, where was God? You know, where, you know, yeah. where was God in that? I believed in God before. God was somewhere out there or up there, you know, some far-off God, and I knew he existed. I didn't feel... Well, actually, I can't say that. I did feel God had an involvement in my life. I feel I felt always a, a feeling of, of being led and, and a presence, but it wasn't... How can I put this? It wasn't the Jewish God who was described to me um, by my parents, by the temple... That Jewish God that they described, he was far off. This was a much more intimate feeling that I had of being close to God. And I and I, I have to say, I I did always really have that. I never, I never so much put it into words. It was just there, and I depended on it. I, you know, now I would call it God's grace. I depended on God's grace. Um, I was early on a musician, so. Um, one could have considered me pretty flighty. Well, I was pretty flighty. And um, because of that, I didn't have to be... My mother didn't expect me, shall I say, to be as connected to the real world and responsible as, say, my younger sister. My younger sister, if we went out, she gave us money, she'd give it to my younger sister because Lisa would put it down somewhere and wander off. So, I was, you know, there was always... There was always something that I felt about the presence of God. But I never once, I cannot ever say, except when the choir and the cantors sang, never in temple did I really feel a true presence of God and a feeling of holiness. As I said, when the choir sang, through music I did. Go ahead. Now, this reminds me of something that I was tempted to ask you earlier, which was you rather uh, graphically described um, what it felt like when your friend told you about Fatima. And um, so my question is the following is, did that register, did that produce an image in your memory that was kind of like in color when other things were in black and white? In other words, was there something about that experience that made it particularly vivid and persistent in your memory? Yes, very much so. I can, as old as I am now, I can to this day, see in my mind's eye exactly what those little children in the drawing in the book looked like. I can see it. I can remember pondering it. I can think about it. And then later on, jumping way ahead, when I was uh, probably 19, 18, um, I was visiting a friend in 
the Midwest in Illinois, we went to a uh, yard, not a yard sale, but a big estate sale. And there was obviously it had been donated by a church, but it was a large life-size statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And I couldn't tear myself away from that statue because I felt something coming out of it, some enormous energy coming out of it. And I was spellbound. And my friend was around looking at things, and I just stayed there for the longest time. And I didn't know what to think of it. I didn't think much about it. But, yes, so those two experiences did have a great impression on me. Um, okay, because I, I, I don't I, – I have all – I have every week, you know, to talk about myself, so I don't really want to talk about myself. Okay. But I, I can't believe how much similarity there is in, <laughs> in, in this fabric because, yeah. you know – I don't have a great memory of week in and week out of my childhood, but everything that mm-hmm. had to do with Catholicism, everything that had to do with Jesus just stands out there like I like I could draw an exact picture of it. Yeah, you know, isn't it was, that amazing? Like when I was seven years old playing, I think it was playing vampire with a friend, and he had shown me you make a sign of a cross with your fingers, mm-hmm. and that walks yeah. off the vampire. I couldn't get enough of that. I mean, that was just like so exciting really? to make the sign of the cross. The, uh, you talk yeah. about the statue of um, Fatima. I, I used to be mesmerized by the St. Joseph's aspirin bottle. Today is St. Mm. Joseph's feast days. I, I want to give him honor. But it was the only thing in our house that had anything to do with a saint. I didn't know what a saint was. But yeah. I used to stand in front of that St. Joseph's aspirin bottle and, and feel wow. consolation coming from it. Isn't so, that funny? Uh, yeah, but I, what I want to really tell our listeners, I guess, in a way, um, is is um, God <laughs> uses so heavily these images, these experiences. Uh, don't be shy about them. I mean, basically try to save souls through them. I had a babysitter. Yeah. Uh, I think I was probably about five. We had a babysitter who must have been Catholic because while my parents were out, and, and she was we used to watch the Lawrence Welk show, that shows how oh, old sure. I am. Um, afterwards, yeah, she, taught, she taught us the Hail Mary. And when my parents came home, I proudly recited the Hail Mary to them, and they oh, hit boy. the roof. And I'm I never, sure. She, she was never invited again. But I remember so clearly that incident, all of these incidents. So, so you know, please, exp- I mean, Christmas crashes, yeah. which are now forbidden pretty much, you know, Christmas carols what are during those? Christmas season. Hear. The, these are very powerful, and they form, they they mm-hmm. they are formative for small children, and the Holy Spirit uses them maybe thirty years later. So, uh, yeah. sow seeds, sow seeds wherever you can, because this right, is just, right. you know, this is showing the the seeds um, kind of ripening. Mm-hmm. So, I, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right, and I have probably tended to think. I'm sure a lot of my friends out there listening right now are thinking, oh, I never heard about that. Because I tended to think, well, it's private revelation. And, you know, so I don't know that I would be believed and, and or understood. And so I didn't talk about it too much. But Well, yeah, that's the thing about right. having a fanatic Catholic audience, if we have one. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. And I think oh, well. you had this experience also, if I remember correctly from our previous conversation. I was delighted when I started reading Catholic Saints. Because I, the yeah. first saint I, I read was uh, Saint Teresa of Avila, 
And all of a sudden it's like, hey, you're allowed to take these mystical experiences seriously because the saints yes. do. Yes, yes. You know, it's well, wonderful. You can find a home because you're actually allowed yes. to have had these experiences. Well, interesting. that leads me to another very interesting experience and one that really made a mark on me, a very big mark. And so after I'd had this whole experience of God and, and knew God existed, um, and there was a lot happening to me in a way, odd things of a supernatural nature, and, you know, I, I, too much to go into, but it was a very fruitful time that way. So by this time, I'm, I was 16, and I had a dream one night, and in the dream... I was standing in the living room of my mother's house, which is where I live, and it was the middle of the night, but all the lights were on. And my mother and sister were back sleeping, I assume. Very, very, very quiet. And I walked down the hall to my bedroom, which was at the end of the hall, and I cracked the door open, and it was pitch black in there. And as I opened the door, my grandmother, who was still alive, was sleeping on the couch. I had a couch in my room. My, I had I had actually the biggest bedroom in the house for whatever reason my mother didn't want. <clears throat> and I remember thinking to myself in the dream, that's because she's the last one left. So she's here because she's the last one left on earth because all her brothers and sisters had died. And I closed the door and sitting up in my bed where I would be if I were going to sleep was my great aunt Clara with light on her face so I could see her. And she had died about four years previously when I was about 12. And I, I never really knew her. Um, my sister and I were talking about it last night, and I do remember being in her presence, but, you know, when you're a child, you're not really going to sit and talk with your great aunt. You know what I mean? My sister and I, she was around twice that I, that once that I remember, once that my sister remembers. And um, we didn't spend much time with her. We were off playing games by ourselves. This is your Aunt Clara. Hi, Aunt Clara. Love, love you, kiss, hug. Okay, off to play. So she was sitting up in my bed, and I went and sat on the edge of the bed. And she told me, she proceeded to tell me everything there was to know about life after death, that there was a life after death. What happens when you die? <clears throat> Where do you go? What transformations you go through? And, of course, this is one of those things where it all made so much sense to me. I knew I'd remember it forever, and I did remember it for even years, and I didn't write it down, and now I don't remember it. But I'm really fine with that because I almost feel like a veil was drawn over it for a reason, and so that's fine. And um, so then we talked, really, all, all the rest of the night, and all, and, and all of a sudden I noticed it was light out. It was It was morning. And she stood up and she said, I have to go now. And she leaned in and looked at me intently and said, the Micaiah is here. And I thought, well, that's an odd word. And I'm in my childish mind, I'm thinking to myself, well, she used the word Micaiah because we're Jewish and we can't say Messiah. And I looked to her left and there was this being all made of gold light, like little you know those bath beads you used to be able to buy, like gold little beads of light, and superimposed upon where the face would be of this being was a picture like what we now know is a hologram, like a hologram 
of the most sweet, saccharine uh, picture of Jesus that you would find in any Catholic schoolgirl's bedroom. Um, and I thought to myself in the dream, that's so that I will know who this is. And um, so she, then they left, they walked out through the, I had a door out to the outside of my bedroom. They walked out through the door in the bedroom, and then I opened my mind, my eyes, and it was, in fact, morning. So wow. that was a very interesting thing for my very, very Jewish, I mean, they were so Jewish, my, my Aunt Claire and Uncle Dave. They had a restaurant in New York where Jewish women on Friday nights, I learned this later, by the way, by looking it up on the Internet. Women on Friday nights would bring their, is it Colin? Is that, am I, is that right? Do, do you know that? It's a it's a Friday it's a Friday night dish that Jewish women make, and that it only needs to be kept warm. And they had an oven that they would keep the the women's porridge warm all night, so that on Saturday the women didn't have to cook. So they were very very Jewish. So of course the next morning, my mother. I was lucky that my mother did believe in things like dreams and things like that. And so I said, Mom, what does Machaya mean? And she said, Machaya, Machaya. What is the Hebrew word? Machaya mean is what I asked her. She said, well, Hebrew, you know Hebrew better than I do. I don't know what it means. I said, well, do you know an, another word, Machaya? And she said, well, I think it means like blessing, something like that. And then we t- and she said, well, why are you asking? So I told her, I just, I didn't go into great details, but I said, well, I dreamt about Aunt Clara that she came to me and we had a long talk and she used the word Machaya. And she said, oh, well, if that was Aunt Clara, she She'd be speaking Yiddish. She was the only one in the family who was fluent in Yiddish. And I said, oh, okay, I didn't know that. So I looked, and I didn't, really didn't find anything. And years later, I was in a used bookstore and went downstairs, and there were a bunch of books on the table. And I found a, a Jewish, uh, a Yiddish, uh, Yiddish to English book, translations. And in that book, Machiah was translated as Messiah. And um, it's the only place I've seen it since then except one place I once found on the Internet where the Sephardic word for Messiah is Messiah. So that was interesting. And another interesting corollary to that is in getting ready to talk to you, because I really haven't told my conversion story in about 14 years, so I had to sort of get my thoughts together. I was musing about that dream, and the word came to me out of nowhere, the Vulot. Now, I don't know that word. I assumed it was Hebrew. And I looked it up, and um, it's one of, I do remember hearing the phrase Shemona Esrei, but believe me, I couldn't have told you that if I hadn't looked it up. Those are the 18, they're really 19 prayers that all Jews are supposed to recite every day. But the weird, weird thing about Givurot, it's the second blessing or bracha in the Shemona Esrei, which deals almost exclusively in fact, I could even say exclusively. Well, it deals with God's mighty deeds, but in the belief in his resurrection of the dead. It's this very short paragraph of four sentences, and in that short paragraph of four sentences, the resurrection or revival of the dead is mentioned five times. And so um, I didn't know it until I looked that up just a week or so ago that the re- resurrection of the dead is one of the cardinal beliefs in Judaism. We were never taught that. It was never taught to us. It's the 13th principle of Maimonides, 13 principles of faith, but it was never taught. So it was very odd 
it was almost like God wanted to affirm or confirm to me that there was really something to this. Yeah. Um, so, um, go ahead. No, I, I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just uh, stunned. That's all in a good way. Yeah, it's an amazing, it's an amazing dream. It's an amazing dream, and for me, uh, at that time in my life, and so young, and and you know, I remember what the impact that that had on me. So. This is the funny part. So the following year, I was 17, and I entered a piano contest, um, competition. I was a classical pianist and studying in, to be a concert pianist. And so I entered this competition, and my mother and I flew to Provo, Utah, and stayed in a hotel room. And I remember just out of idle curiosity, opening the door next to my side of the bed and looking in, and there was a Bible. And I said, wow, look at this, Mom. There's a Bible in here. And she explained to me that those were left by people called the Gideons, a group called the Gideons, so people could read the Bible. Well, <laughs> when she... Now, you have to understand that the New Testament would have been contraband in our house. We were not allowed to even look at it. I mean, Jesus was the J word. You know, we didn't talk about it. It was not an option. Um, we did have members of, of her sisters, my mother's sister's family, who went to Bible school, and she was very, very... Um, adamant that that was the wrong thing to do. But anyway, so when she, my mother fell asleep, and I very, very stealthily opened up that drawer as quietly as I could, and I fished out that Bible, and I looked in it, and then she stirred a little bit, and I thought, I'm never going to be able to read this right now with her here. And I just took it, and I put it in my suitcase. So, <laughs> and I, I kind of convinced myself that when she said the Gideons left it there for people that maybe they wanted us to take the Bible, like, you know, like the hotel leaves little little uh, samples of shampoo and conditioner, and they expect you to take some of this. But maybe the Bible was kind of like that, too. Years later, of course, I had to admit to myself, okay, I stole my first Bible. All right, there's no getting around it, I guess. So I took it home with me. She never knew it. And um, I would sometimes peek at it from time to time, but really didn't have the time or the, the peace and quiet to really read it. It wasn't until I moved out of my mother's house when I was in undergraduate school there in Las Vegas that I, I first went to UNLV, and um, I got my own apartment. And um, I was able to, at my leisure, read the New Testament. And I will never forget my first reading of John 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And I knew that I was one of those sheep, without a doubt. I knew that. And I also felt, this is more of a private interpretation, in Matthew when our Lord said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That he was talking about spiritual ears. He wasn't talking about your ears, your physical ears. And I knew that God had opened my spiritual ears to hear him. Um, so, anyway, going on to the next phase, any questions before I do? Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you imagine okay. any possible reason why, uh, I don't know how to put this, you attracted God's attention, what God's purpose for you was in, in being so generous and leading you into the truth? Honestly, really, Roy, the only thing I can think of is to be quite honest, since in a way I was so allowed to remain 
you know, in my childhood for so many years, you know, in what I call and what has been called the pre-logical state, where words are, where thoughts are not even words, um, because my mother didn't expect me to be responsible, and so I didn't have to account for myself. I think I was perhaps more open. That's really my explanation. I was more open to God leading me because I, I didn't have as much, as many ideas and, and beliefs to get in the way of that. I was just sort of, you know, anybody who knew me, and, and I still tend to be a little bit dizzy that way. I'm, I'm not always connected. I, my, my wonderful husband takes care of me that way. I don't know what I he laughs and doesn't know what I do without him, and it's true. So I think that that's the only thing I can really come up with, to be honest. Okay, I do. I, I don't want to take too much time on this either, but I do yeah. actually beat the drum on the show that um, it's a dogma of the Catholic Church that um, in the period shortly preceding the Second Coming, the veil will be lifted from the eyes of the Jews, and there'll be yes. a widespread conversion of the Jews. Yes. Um, and uh, frankly, because yes. uh, you know, I, I I couldn't help suspecting that the extraordinary graces, the kind of being hit over the head with a two by four that brought you into the church, that brought me into the church, mm-hmm. you know, wasn't anything that we deserve, but might be part of that wave no. that um, you know is prophesied. Well, I do I do think you're right. I thought of it when you asked me. I was thinking it more in personal terms, but sure, absolutely, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have thought that earlier, but now as an adult, yes, I absolutely do think that. And you talk about that eloquently in your book. And if you don't mind, because I know you would never do it, I'm going to mention your book here on the air for anyone who hasn't heard of it. It's called Salvation is from the Jews. It's an excellent book. I'm not finished with it yet. I'm reading it now. And um, that, and you talk about that, and that is true. That wouldn't have been something I would have at that time had any idea about. But looking back, I can say, yes, I, I absolutely, there's no, nothing, no way I merited it. I was a little more open, you know, as William James talks about the, the margins of uh, our mind, you know, and, and I had my wide open margins that were a little leaky. So, you know, if you want to look at it that way. So God was able to get through maybe to me. And that, that's, that's the explanation. But as an overall plan, I, I wholeheartedly concur with that, wholeheartedly. So. Well, I, I, I'm terrified by the fact, or terrified may not be the right word, but I dread the fact that um, it's we only have about, a, you know, 15, <laughs> not even 15 minutes left. So I, I, know. To, um, I want to kind of fast forward, um, yeah. let's put it this way, which is, uh, does it, the word Medjugorje mean anything to you? Yes, it's funny you should bring that up. All right. So let me see. Let me get to where I can talk about that. I made some little notes for myself, so I wouldn't forget anything. Well, I'll, I'll, so, I don't know if it makes any sense for me to help you, but um, you know, this is obviously yeah. a later phase in your life. You got yeah, I'm sick, skipping to that. Very yeah. sick, mm-hmm. and um, were yes, presumably coming out of that illness or in that illness, and started reading Eastern philosophy and came across uh, something in a bookstore and, you know, and yes. history. Well, by this time, I had um, be- begun to believe in Jesus, or be- I be- begun to believe that he existed. I didn't know. I didn't really ever understand in a way the Messiah of the world thing. I mean, I did, 
but I didn't understand where I stood in that relationship to being Jewish. And um, I do want to say, because it's important to what helped me believe that, that I, at that time, had two little nieces. I, I have more now, but the, my five-year-old at that time niece was very, very ill, and I was reading books on the Holy Spirit and Jesus and Christian healing, and I prayed with all my heart to the Holy Spirit to heal her, and she was healed. So that had a huge impact on me. And um, without that, and then I issued a challenge, all right, Jesus, if you do exist, you, I need you to let me know. If you exist right here today, right now. And um, later I sort of was watching TV and there was some program on I normally wouldn't watch about a miracle of a girl who had been taken to Lourdes and was very ill, and he met a beautiful lady who, at that time, I did not associate with the Blessed Virgin Mary, but now I do. And she wanted to stay with her, the sick girl, and the, the woman told her, no, you must go back so that everyone will know that he exists right here, right now, today. It was exactly the words I used. So anyway, so, and then I, I believed in him, and I asked the Lord, now what? And he said, read my word which was a foreign concept to me. So anyway, um, so yes, I, I would then, like you, in, in your experience, sit with the yellow pages of the phone book and look through and try to figure out, I should go to some church, what church, I don't know. And I was in the habit of going to bookstores, and I would only ever go to one section, and that was the religion section. And my eye fell on a book called The Visions of the Children by Janice T. O'Connell. And it was about, and yes, I was very ill at that time. Um, I was on a four-day rotational diet and could eat only basically eight things without suffering terrible symptoms. And so I read, was standing there in the book, in the bookstore reading the, through the book. I did buy the book, but, and one of the younger visionaries, uh, oh, so for anyone who may not know, it was about the fact that, uh, well, I think it's a fact, but anyway, that our blessed mother has been visiting six children in the village in then Yugoslavia uh, called Medjugorje and had been giving them messages for themselves and also for the world. And Yaakov was talking, he used the phrase involuntary fast. And the interviewer asked him, what do you mean involuntary fast? And he said, well, if people are unable or unwilling to fast, God will sometimes, through his grace, give them involuntary fast that they may do penance for their sins and the sins of others. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt that that was what had happened to me. I just knew it deep within my soul. So I took the book. I bought the book, and I, I didn't steal that one. I brought it home. I paid for it. And um, I began, because they kept talking about the rosary, and I loved what I was hearing about this sort of emphasis on this interiority of the spiritual experience, because my spiritual experience was very interior. Um, I, I, I've always been more of a Mary than a Martha, so um, I started praying the rosary. And I will tell you that those, those words, you know, Mary, Mother of God, and, and, you know, pray for us sinners, what, you know, what was wrong with me? I, I guess I had an awareness I was a sinner, but I didn't really think of myself that way. So those words just stuck in my throat, but I persisted. And as I persisted, the Holy Spirit began to teach me. And things, you know, as I always tell people now, I don't know, especially if you're raised with an intellectual bias, 
which I know many Jewish, many of us Jewish people do have, and um, the university, which is, you know, just um, the, the the home of secular humanism today. Um, you know, there aren't a, there are a lot of believers in the university. That's why I'm glad glad that there are these um, students. Uh, uh, groups for, for Jesus. But anyway, so um, the Holy Spirit, I, I always tell people, I didn't pick up a book and read about what the Catholic Church has taught, was teaching, and say, oh yeah, that, that's right, sign me up, I, I'm on board, where do I sign? Uh, in fact, nothing made sense to me until I started praying the rosary. And so I want to make that point to everybody and anybody listening who may be questioning there are many people who pray, pray the rosary. Protestants pray the rosary. There are even Jewish people who pray the rosary. Your questions, if you meditate on the mysteries with Mary about Jesus, many of your questions will be answered. Maybe not right away. You have to be patient. But the Holy Spirit will teach you. And that's what happened to me. Any questions? Any questions? Uh, so where are you now in all of this? Well, so now I, I, of course, joined RCA. I'm in the church. I met my, my husband, um, whom I'm now married to since 99. I met him at Prince of Peace Abbey, a monastery. Um, he was there seeing a priest, and so was I. And um, we live a a life that is grounded in God and grounded in our prayer life and um, maybe somewhat monastic to some people. Our life would be very boring. We don't, we have, we share the same interest. We have one big interest and that's God and we share that together. So I am forever grateful about the life that we lead. Um, a few years ago in 2011, I was in the Adoration Chapel which is where, for those who don't may not know, where the um, the Eucharist, the Blessed Sacrament, is exposed for worshipers, and we as Catholics believe that Jesus is truly present in the in the communion um, that we receive in the host. And so, for me, Jesus was there for us. We know that. And um, I was rereading Sister Lucia's words in her own words, Fatima in her own words. I had read it before, and I was reading. And I came to the passage where these young children were making sacrifices and willing to suffer for God for the conversion of sinners, and that there seemed to be some some thing in this that they could actually help people convert through their sacrifices and their sufferings. And I do not know what made me do this. And I closed the book and put it down, and I got on my knees, and I prayed to the Lord from the very bottom of my soul, I have no idea where it came from. Lord, please let me suffer for the conversion of sinners. And so that's it. That was it. And um, went home. A few months later, I had an accident while I was working out, and we didn't know it at the time, but evidently I caused a bunch of hairline cracks in my ribs, and I got and doctors were giving me medicines that probably shouldn't have been combined. And those created a big hole in my stomach, which went undetected for a couple of years, actually, which usually you have about six hours to operate, but I managed to get through. I was in more pain than I thought 
it was humanly possible for anyone to bear. I was always aware and remembered that I prayed that prayer. I never saw it as anything else. I knew it was God's grace. And um, I was near death. In fact, I actually did die in the hospital for 10 minutes, and they brought me back. Um, I remember none of the actual death. I do remember waking up, and I felt more peaceful than I ever have in my entire life, and I felt like a newborn baby. So my husband now jokingly refers to my body, which bears scars as my resurrection body. But anyway, so I experienced the grace of God in that, and I know that that will shock some of my friends listening because they have no idea that I ever prayed that prayer, but I did. And that's, in my mind, what it was about. And God uh, is so, ever since that time, truly so with me. Um, we are buds. <laughs> we are partners. And I love him. Wow. Wow. <laughs> well, I, I hate to end, but that's a pretty that's good place true. to end if I have to ever end. Yes, um, sure. So I just want to really thank you, and I, I pray that, that this deeply moves our, our listeners and that we Me unite too. ourselves with Jesus in the coming lead up to to Good Friday and Easter in yes. a deep right. way and unite ourselves with mm-hmm. his suffering and and just remember how um boy, I don't want to say how deadly serious this all is, but how the reality <laughs> of all of this stuff, how the reality of all of the Catholic faith is much more real than that, you know, concrete overpass on I-75 yes. or something. It is absolutely much more real than anything in the physical world, and we are so privileged to be able to to uh, participate in it and enter into it with Jesus. We are, and I have a great sense of urgency since my sickness. You're welcome. Thank you so much for allowing me to speak. And I hope to have the opportunity to invite you back soon. And I want to thank our to. listeners also. Oh, good. Okay, I heard that. <laughs> Not registered, <laughs> volunteered. And I want okay. to thank our listeners for uh, having listened today. And I hope you join us again next week on Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. Bye for now. <laughs>